But I have a question for you today, and that is, what is it that you kind of live your life by? We have what's called the American dream. Um, now it's turned into more of the American myth, uh, but if I told you today, you can be anything you want to be, what would be your reaction? Um, you can find all kinds of poems on here. Here's one of the most famous by Donald Levine. There is inside of you all the potential to be whatever you want to be. All of the energy to do whatever you want to do. Okay. There's another one that says you can do anything in this world you want to do, but you must want to do it badly enough. You really can have everything you want if you go after it. You have to want it. You can be whatever you make up your mind to be. What's in your mind and what's in your heart is all that counts. How many have heard these things? But I mean, have you guys, listen, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're everywhere there. Um, there's a book that I looked at a little bit. I did not buy it, but you can be whatever you want to be. I did it and you can do it at any age by Ted Baxter. And he says, I worked every day of the year from age seven until 18. I then worked my way through three universities, getting three advanced degrees. After graduating, I no longer had any financial problems, and I've lived a very good life ever since then, which continues to get better and better. I've done it all on my own, and I can show you how to do it too. Huh? Are you guys? Is that you kind? Yeah. Okay, this is what we call part of, you look at it, the, I call it the American myth, um, the idea that there are things that could happen. I don't know how many times you've heard it quoted. Um, I was helping out at school a few years ago and I saw this poster. It says, you can be whatever you want to be. And it had actually a picture like this of a, of a person who's doing an astronaut. And, um, and I believe it's meant to inspire creativity and possibility, right? That's, that's a good thing. We wanna say, hey, there are some possibilities. It can be a powerful motivator for, for children. Um, or a person to move towards that next step in their life. For instance, I, I remember early on telling my dad, Dad, I think I want to be this, I think I want to be that. Dad, I want to be a pilot. He said, oh, I think you'll make a great pilot. Oh, really? Yeah. You walk behind the little animals and you'll pilot here and you'll pilot there. And, uh, and, and Which he loved joking with me about those things. He wasn't trying to dash my dreams. He just, we always had good laughs. And so, but he listened to so many things I wanted to do. That's great. Well, you know, just... If that's what you really want to do, then strive towards that. See how far you get. But there's a part of this that if you tell a child that they can be whatever they want to be and you have not helped them assess out their abilities, their strengths, their weaknesses, their desires, their interests, their passions, their value systems, and what they were ultimately designed for, guess what happens? Eventually they become discouraged, disillusioned, Debilitated as they grow older, they become lost. I'm lost. And you know, Jesus understood this. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He said, I look around and I see so many people, they're really lost. They don't, they've gone after certain things and they found that that does not really satisfy. Many lose their way because success and happiness have been measured by what we do more than by who we are. We're designed to be. You've heard me say that New Day is a place where we invest our life in what matters most. Loving God, 
truly loving and caring about others around us in the world. We call it being real. We do that in tangible ways. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are God's masterpiece. His workmanship means there's stuff that's going on. To do a work, he says, that's, it's in progress. We are made anew in Christ, which means that he, he comes in and he does this work within us so that we can do the good things he had prepared for us long ago, after that work is done. When we focus on who we were created for, God can then give us insights on what we can become. But if you try to flip that around, it doesn't work. That's why I like this Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I want you to keep this in mind, that this is really important. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, this is the purpose, right? Different than the American, you be whatever you want to be. God says, no, I have something different, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, your way of doing life. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, only then will you be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Need direction? This is important. Need to know what the, Lord, I'm coming to you first. That's really what this all is going to be about. Lord, how do you help me to discern out those things that really matter? Irony is that a lot of us are trying to change ourselves because we think that if we do that, then we'll be more acceptable. Maybe God will love me more. Others will be more proud of me. So we spend our time doing those things with the hope that we can fill the void we feel inside in order to have the worth that we want to have. For many, walk with God is really um, only an exercise in knowing about Him and His plan to get what I want. And if I do this, then I'm going to really get what I want, what I, what's necessary. And it's kind of like, well, actually, you've missed out if that's the only reason. But actually allowing yourself time with him to transform you, instead of trying to do it yourself, he says, this is what I want. I believe many of us have filled up our life with doing when we really don't know ourselves well enough. And a lot of the stuff that we do isn't the most helpful. And it leaves us emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. And I think that's part of the dilemma we have. So over the next number of weeks, here's what we're going to do together. We're going to be working through this dilemma. Um, our spirituality, our relationship with Jesus Christ. When it's not emotionally healthy, we're not really who we appear to be. Mike Iaconelli had realized for years and years that he had spent really focusing on I'm trying to really show everyone what it means to follow God and what it means to, you know, have late and, and tell young people all over the place. And somewhere within there, he said, I realized that I did more pretending than I did actual living. I just kind of pretended that everything was doing what I wanted it to do. And he said that pretending is the grease of non-relationships with God and with one another. And he said, I had to stop pretending. I had to be very honest with where I'm at right now. Not to try to look good, not to try to be a certain way. I had to really get myself to the point. And it changed his life, even after I've been a follower of Jesus for over 30 years. So we're going to work on this. We're going to get below the level. And uh, we have here what um, Peter Scazzaro has called the iceberg model, 
what lies below the surface. Basically, we have 10% above the surface, but there's like 90% is what's really going on underneath the surface of our life. It's what happens when, when we go under stress. It's that part that really is transformed and then the top of it pops up and it's like Jesus said, out of your life will flow the fruits and the character and the values of what takes place underneath. But most of us, when we start talking about this, we get really overwhelmed because there's so much information, there's so much self-help. We think, oh, this is another Christian self-help time. Okay, okay, this is just another thing I gotta go through and I don't want it to be that. Seriously, please don't do that. Take this and say, what are the patterns I can set up right now that I will do the rest of my life? That's why we're doing this. That's why we did it in 2011. That's why we're coming back to it. There are regular patterns that can transform your life. I think sometimes we get like Calvin and Hobbes here, which I think is funny. Um, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to know anything new. Anybody ever feel that way? <laughs> I've got too much information already. I already know more than I want to. I like things better when I didn't understand them. And then he goes on, the fact is I'm being educated against my will. My rights are being trampled. Is it a right to remain ignorant? I don't know, but I refuse to find out. <laughs> I, I love that because there's a sense of it, yeah, John, I'm already overloaded with information. Woo. I'm not wanting to give you more information. What my goal is, is that there is transformation that takes place Every week we get together, when you come to the small group, when you gather together, when you're in your quiet time, real, not pretend, real transformation that Jesus came to do. That's what we want to see happen during this time. We're going to look at intellectually. You can understand it quite easily. You're going to go, oh, this, this makes sense. But another thing to actually implement it in your life, changing the way you live, the way you see God the way that you follow Jesus Christ, the way that you enter into relationships, the way that you make decisions. And so what we're after as a church family is to integrate this more deeply into us, to have this become part of us. You can't just read through this and say, oh yeah, I get it, I got it. No, it's not that kind of thing. It requires more than just talking, more than just listening. It requires more than just showing up on Sunday and saying, I got it, check it off. It requires an investment. And Sarah already mentioned, I hope that you're involved in some kind of small group. If not, gather a couple more people together, get together with them, really start to look at what that means, be intentionally involved with one another. Um, come on Monday nights that we're starting on the 15th. Um, gather together with whoever you can and uh, say, hey, just even if it's another person, you want to go through this with me? I really want this to become a pattern in my life. There's one person I want to look at briefly this morning from God's word who reflects kind of this emotionally unhealthy relationship with God. And he's King Saul. He was chosen. There's some things going on in his life. We get to examine the fabric of his character really on a deeper level. Saul is probably one of the greatest examples in scripture of someone who lacked emotional health and contemplative life. And basically he brought destruction on himself. He had such great promise. Everyone saw in him the potential of what it would be like. He had humble beginnings, but from that point on, it didn't go very well. So we're going to pick up the story. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to look at that. Otherwise, take out your insert. And by the way, if you need a pencil or anything and you want to write, um, there's pencils back there. Just hold up your hand. Bill will come around. He's sitting back there, and he'll just hand out pencils. So if you need one, let him know, and 
He'll come over and get you a pencil if you need anything to write. But uh, we're going to take a look at this. I'm beginning at verse 9. Um, Saul is given a command by God to basically get the armies together of Israel, hundreds of thousands of troops, and to go against the Amalekites. Because of their self-centered focus, they didn't take God into account. They were totally devoid. They were, they were just, we're not going to do it. And, um, and we're going to deal with not the reasons why God's wrath came upon them. Um, that's for another time, another message. But I do want to focus and look at Saul's response to this challenge. So the prophet Samuel, he brings this message from God to go and be obedient and do this thing. Saul does go. He gets all the armies together of Israel. He goes out on his mission. He doesn't do it all. He does most of it. Verse 9, it tells him instead of wiping out all the sheep and the cattle and the king and all the Amalekites, Saul and the army spared a God and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. So let's look at what's happening. Start in verse 12 there. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Okay, just a note here. If you're going somewhere, and uh, just starting to crack a little. Okay, if you're going somewhere, and uh, you're called to God to go do something, and then afterwards you say, man, is anybody going to give me a pat on the back about this? And you're walking around, and you're maybe patting yourself on the back and thinking, this is awesome. Um, and you go and set up some kind of monument to yourself, sitting outside your house and saying, hey, everyone, I just wanted you to know what I did. Not a good thing. All right, this is, this is not a good thing. Well, when Samuel finally found him in verse 13, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless us, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all this bleeding of sheep and goats and lord of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. Oh, it's true. That the army spared the best of the sheep, the goats, and the cattle, Saul admitted. But they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. I mean, as far as Saul is concerned, I did the majority of what was expected of me. I mean, I did and went and followed through to the best of my ability. Um, but he hasn't really listened. And he doesn't understand the reasons why that was necessary. He hasn't really done fully what was asked of him. His life is out of order, and he remains kind of a little bit emotionally and intellectually and, and spiritually detached from it. Let's read. Um, verse 19, it says, Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Keeps you a little bit of note about what his motive was. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else, everything else. And then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifice or obedience to his voice? Listen, pay attention. Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering of the fat of the lambs. 
want to take a little bit of time this morning and take this apart and to kind of look at just three characteristics of what a unhealthy uh, emotional spiritual person looks like and we're looking at Saul here and there's some characteristics and it has an application for us as we launch into our journey the first thing Saul does as an emotionally and spiritually unhealthy person is to say no to reflection and self-awareness no, I'm not going to get at what my real motives are for doing this. I, I knew I was forced to do it, but I tried to find out what I'm going to get out of this. All right? And what he realized as he went on this mission is saying, okay, I'm just interested in what I'm going to get out of it. What's going to be best for me? Not realizing that what was best for him was beyond his scope of what he could see at that time. He believed what he saw that was going to immediately give him gratification was best for him. He's praying kind of. He's listening sort of. He's doing God's will. He's doing the worship. He's doing the whole thing. In fact, he even said, we're going to be able to offer some sacrifices, and that'll be a good thing. And that'll even be more pleasing to God than God's initial plan. I think I might know some things more than God does. I, I saw some things, and I've got some strategy here. Even when he's confronted, he just sort of feels sorry and repents. Look what he says in verse 30. Then Saul pleaded again. I know I've sinned. All right. Way to go, Saul. Wait a minute. But please, at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. He wants Samuel to go back so he doesn't look bad. His desire for approval and for affirmation that I did a pretty good job is deep in him. He's unaware of his own fears. He's not in touch with the sense of what really is going on. He's afraid to admit what his motive truly was, that his conduct shows that his fears, his worries, his need for approval, all was overtaking his obedience, his opportunity to enter into something that God had that was going to be great for him. I like that he does admit it. When he says, yes, I sinned, I disobeyed the instructions, the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people, and I did what they demanded. So now we get a little bit of this, okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay it out there a little bit. I did this because of my fears. I was afraid of the people. I mean, if they're seeing me do all this, I just, I kind of took everything into account, and that became more important than just following through with what, God asked me to do. When we refuse to see certain parts of ourselves, or if you see them, but don't understand that on a deeper level, what do you do? Do you really step back and go, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing this behavior? Why am I entering into this? What is it that I'm hoping to accomplish from this? Or is it just kind of a numbing thing? You know, I'm just... That self-awareness piece is where we come back and say, I need to understand some things about what's behind what I'm doing. Parents, when we raise kids, we're often pushing and driving our, our children out of fear. Fear they won't love us, won't respect us, they won't grow up properly. Fear of what other people will think if they act a certain way. We often make decisions at work and in our romantic relationships based on fear, not wisdom of truth, not God's love for us, Fear is a powerful motivator. I said this before, but my daughter Amanda was writing a paper because the teacher asked them, what is more powerful, fear or love? So my daughter was kind of weighing those out, and she came back, and she goes, Dad, 
Um, I've decided to write that fear is more powerful than love. And I'm saying, well, where are you getting all that from? Dad, look at this. And she started writing on it. Look at this, this, and this, and this. It seems to me that fear motivates people a lot more than love does. That's a nice paper for you to write for your teacher. What kind of failure am I as a parent? You can't do that. And my biggest fear came right out. No, I don't want your teacher to think that fear is more powerful than love. I'm a pastor. What are they going to think if you do that? But I didn't say any of that. I just stepped back and go, yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Fear is kind of right there. See, it's, it's the idea that we can hide from our fears. We can kind of run with them. We're going to pretend like they're not there. What Mike Iaconelli did for years, he said, I pretended that what other people viewed me as was more important than how God viewed me and how I actually viewed myself. I let other people dictate to me what the view was, and even their view of me was not understood by me. He said it was a very confusing thing. Paul, Saul, all of them thought they knew, and God had to open their eyes. I don't know if you ever get in conflict with other people. Most of us do. How do you deal with that conflict? You don't want to risk hurting that relationship, and so you don't tell the whole truth. Or sometimes, when you can enter in, we're not strategizing. How do I present this? Um, maybe it's too emotional to go down that road. We, maybe it requires too much emotional reflection, prayerful thoughts. Um, what happens is we really live under hidden underneath here and the surface we try to show a different part of ourselves. but here's the thing staying in touch with God really coming before him in an open avenue requires you to really stop running and to listen to what God is trying to tell you I gotta do that I gotta stop and Lord what is it that you're trying to say and it's not just paying attention to what's going on in life around you But it's looking at the motives inside about why you do what you do. Why am I doing this? What are my feelings about what's going on inside of me? What are my thoughts about this? And basically, you have to wrestle through those things. See, Saul is not in touch with himself. There's all kinds of things that are going on. He's trying to make excuses. And he's, he's basically trying to get out of this situation that he's in. And a part of it is that you need silence, solitude, time of reflection to be in touch with yourself and with God. You do. If you've never done that, then you have missed out on the most important aspect of your emotional and spiritual development. Seriously. Not taking time to reflect has really hindered you in ways that you might not even realize. I had the motto, if you run fast enough, you can outrun your problems. They won't catch up to you. It's an ideology that I carry for well into my 30s. I appreciate that one of the most influential and most respected presidents in our U.S. history was President Lincoln. Carl Sandburg wrote a biography on him, and he respected him greatly because he lived out one of the most important principles that Sandburg learned later on in life. And he saw this pattern. And so he ends up writing this. He says, a man must find time for himself. Time is what we spend our lives with. If we're not careful, we find others spending it for us. It is necessary now and then for a man to go away by himself and experience loneliness. To sit on a rock in the forest, ask himself, who am I? Where have I been? And where am I going? 
If one is not careful, one allows diversions to take up one's time, and time is the stuff of life. One allows diversions to take up one's time. When you have extra time, can I ask what you do with it? Ah, oh, I can play this video game. I can watch this TV show. I can do a Netflix binge. I can, what is it that you do? Do you ever step back and go, I'm not gonna do any of that. Right now, I'm gonna spend some time over here really developing the whole essence of who God designed it to be. To know what I'm thinking and feeling, it takes silence and solitudes. To tame the monsters of our false selves. It takes that reflection time to draw out the pressures of society, our culture are gonna bombard you day after day. And you're gonna superficially then just try to conform to whatever you think the expectations are that you have or that others have of you. It takes a tremendous amount of commitment to enter into that. Are you saying yes or no? to that self-reflection and awareness? That's the first question you must answer. The second thing Paul Saul does um, is to say no to cultivating his relationship to God. So he has this opportunity now. It's like, okay, now I can move forward. God has this great thing in store for me. I listen to him, I'm looking at him, I'm keeping my eyes on him. But no, he says no to cultivating. He doesn't spend the energy and time to really see and to say, God, I don't understand this, but I wanna make sure that I'm being obedient, so help me to fully listen and embrace what you have to say. He has a public life in God, but you never see evidence of his private life. He doesn't go away and do that, like David did. In fact, he was very jealous of David because he watched David do that. In fact, he, he was so worked up at times that he had David come and play the harp for him and play musical instruments so that he could calm down. That's the only time you see, but even that, he's doing the comparison thing. I don't like this David character. I mean, he seems to have something that I don't, and I'm bothered by that. Instead of pursuing that and entering into that, he's trying to find a way out of it. We look at verse 22 when God speaks to him. They're sharp words, not just in Saul's life, but for us today. Verse 22 says, Sam replied, what's more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings, sacrifices, obedience to his voice. If you can't hear his voice, how can you be obedient? If you're never listening to his voice, how can you know what he wants you to do? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission is better than the offering of the fat of the rams. The Hebrew word for obey and Hebrew are the same for obey and listen. They're the same word, obey, listen. They, they go hand in hand. They're so interconnected that you can't divide them down. Obedience is evidence of having listened and you followed through with it. Saul just doesn't, Paul, Saul doesn't listen. So part of what we're going to talk about the next eight weeks is how do we engage in listening to God, not blaming others. You notice that Saul is also a blamer. A lot of people for what he's messed up in. Instead of taking personal responsibility, he points to others, the people, the expectations of them. Nobody can cultivate your life in God except you. You decide. I really want to know what it means to love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind. I don't know what that means. I want to know that. I want to enter into that. I want to discover what that means. He said it's possible, so what does that look like? I want to go deeper into that. 
I want to understand why the overflow of that is to love people as I love myself. There's part of loving yourself in there. It's an amazing thing. He doesn't just say no to reflection awareness, but he says, no, I'm not going to really develop my relationship with God in any tangible, real way. I'm just going to half-heartedly just do what he says. But he also says no, point three, to being broken through setbacks and difficulties. When difficulties do come, when setbacks, when the hard stuff comes, no, I don't want that. I don't want the trials, the tests that come. But those are part of our life. Saul refused to be broken by it. He just gets up and fights again. He'll come to the altar and cry, but he's really not broken over this. He's finding, trying to find a way out of it. In chapter 13, we see the army of the Philistines are about to wipe out Saul and his army, um, and they're hanging by a thread. God says he's going to show up on the seventh day, and the seventh day, and God's not showing up. He's having a test. Got to wait it out. God said, are you just dependent? Are you keeping them? My Lord, whether I live or die, I'm just going to depend on you. Here we go. We all know what it's like to wait. Testing and waiting breaks your self-sufficiency. And Saul just says, I can't take it. He takes things into his own hands. Then back in chapter 15, he feels the pressures of his shoulders to do something else. Let's keep all this for ourselves. We can have a reason for it. My motive's not going to be found out. It was. It's a trial for him to resist that, but he gives in. So what about sufferings, setbacks? How do, you, how do you use those? Do you learn? Does it help you to be more humble? Do you learn through brokenness and humility? Um, and that's what I find. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are those who mourn, and the blessed are those. He's talking about all the difficulties and they're blessed. There's something happening within there. Saul doesn't want to be dependent, hanging on to God. But you can't have God without that coming with a sense of, I really want you. We forget what Hebrews 5.8 says about the life of Jesus. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? In his life here as a human being, how did he learn obedience? Through times of suffering, through the times of waiting, through times that he had to say, okay, this is what I can't see, but I'm going to trust that you see something beyond. So, it means taking whatever situation you find yourself in right now and saying, this is really painful for me. Um, this is difficult. I'm, I've been waiting and I haven't seen what's happening. Or I, I've tried this and it hasn't been working. Or I feel like I've been suffering and I'm out of touch. And, and God says, well... I am here, um, understand this, um, I have something that I want to provide for you that maybe you can't see right now. See, and I think God's into taking that part of that awareness for us through suffering and difficulty and allowing it so that we can be like Saul and say, okay, do you see this? I want to transform that. Let me transform that. Maybe you've been betrayed, maybe misunderstood. Maybe you feel like you've been waiting far too long. Maybe right now you're in the middle of an incredible setback, difficulty. People that you loved haven't loved you back. Maybe you are in the sense of, man, I've just been waiting for God and I'm so excited, but the excitement's waning because I'm not seeing things happen the way that I thought they would. 
God's saying, will you trust me to do what you cannot do? Because there's no one who understands you or loves you more than he does. So, next several weeks, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. Um, as Sarah said, I'm hoping that you'll pick this up on your way out. You might have already got one last week. Um, read pages 1 through 36. We'll be on that the first few weeks. Um, read over what it says. It gives you some challenge right at the front of this book. Even if you don't pick up the, the, the book that kind of the series goes on, um, in your small group, you'll come to some of those things. This is really the practice that I'm hoping you will take. If you're asking, John, what's the singular thing? I, this right here, the daily exercise. It's not that long, but where the discipline of your life now says, I'm listening. I'm in a listening stance. Each week, I'd like us to understand that God has given us a great promise. And I'll leave you with this. 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. It states, the weapon we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As we go through, we're going to find out just exactly how that works. So in preparation for this time together, um, we're going to remember what Jesus did for us. Um, I am fascinated by the fact that when he went to the garden and he prayed and the fear that came out of his own soul and the wonder that came out and the question that came out was, is there any way to remove this cup from me? If there is, I give you permission, God, to do that. Father. And the answer was, no, you must go through this if you wish to win all humanity back to us. Your willingness to suffer and to die for all humankind is the greatest gift that you will give. Will you be obedient and accept that? So in preparation, um, as the worship team comes forward, um, I'd like to just pray and get our hearts ready to receive this wonderful gift that Jesus did for us at the cross and then rising again and breaking the power of sin and death. So let's just pray again. Lord Jesus, as we come into this time, we realize that there's a lot of Saul in all of us. I mean, there's a lot more than I care to admit. There's a lot of things I do just because I want to do them. And you have challenged me very specifically to own and to keep my eyes on you and to focus in on what you want to have happen. And Lord, I thank you for that because we're here. We have new day. We're here at this YMCA at this time during this period. You called us here and we have responded to you to make a difference in our world, sharing your love and message with those around us. I don't know who hears the songs they come for working out. I don't know, Lord, who in this wonderful gift of people that we get to spend time with, whose heart is really struggling with the question of whether or not they're going to surrender to you. But there's nothing greater. So with this song, Lord, we pour out hearts to you. We ask that you will show us the real intent. And Lord, that during this series, we will find ourselves gloriously submitted to you in a way that brings the kind of joy that you had planned for us long ago. I pray this in your name.